I want to thank President R. Albert Moeller, Jr., Provost Paul Aiken, and Dean Herschel York for the honor of giving this faculty address. It is my joy and privilege to serve on this faculty among such gifted and godly colleagues. I also want to thank my son, Joel, who is both a graduate of both our Boyce College and the seminary for coming. And of course, I'm grateful to my wife, Anne, for being here. She's the godliest person I know as she's lived out before me and our sons what a life of service to Christ and to those around her looks like, especially to those who are unable to care for themselves. My lecture is entitled, Reasons Why New Testament Believers Need to Study, Teach, and Preach the Old Testament. One day, my Hebrew professor in seminary entered the classroom, obviously agitated. After glaring down at his books, he finally looked up at us and said, I don't know why I do this, because none of you is going to preach or teach from the Old Testament anyhow. In response to his challenge, I began regularly preaching from the Old Testament. As I did, the people in my congregation and I both grew in our appreciation of the Old Testament. After 10 years, I believe God was calling me to return to seminary so that I could teach Old Testament and higher education and encourage others to preach and teach it also. My hope was that my students would discover the treasure that is the Old Testament and experience the joy of teaching and preaching it to others. When I told my friends that I was preparing to return to seminary in order to teach, they understood because they knew my love for teaching God's word. However, when they asked me what area of study I was planning to enter and I replied, Old Testament, all of them without exception got befuddled expressions on their faces and asked, why the Old Testament? Some even had the audacity to follow up with questions like, why not something important like New Testament or theology? I have also witnessed this mindset among many of my students entering my classroom. I heard these questions and remarks so many times that I vowed that if I had the opportunity, I would do my best to make sure people knew the answer to why should New Testament believers study, teach, and preach the Old Testament. Therefore, in keeping with this vow, I would like to share with you six reasons New Testament believers should study, teach, and preach the Old Testament. Number one, we should study, teach, and preach the Old Testament because it is the Word of God. The Old Testament is more than a record of an ancient people, more than just a collection of religious texts, and more than a com compilation of wise teachings. It may seem obvious, but it is essential that when one studies, teaches, or preaches the Old Testament, that one always remembers that the Old Testament is the Word of God. This truth has not always been recognized by everyone throughout the history of the church. For instance, in the mid-2nd century, I'm sure you are aware of Marcion's rejection of the Old Testament because he believed the malevolent creator God, the so-called demiurge, depicted in the Old Testament who ordered the, the slaughter of multitudes of human beings whose laws were oppressive and who was generally antagonistic toward people was incompatible with the Lord Jesus Christ, the gracious, loving God in the New Testament. However, the New Testament became a problem for Marcion for at least two reasons. One, the writings in the New Testament are intricately 
connected to the Old Testament, and two, the New Testament authors referred to the Old Testament as the Scriptures, the Word of God. Consequently, to eliminate every reference and allusion to the Old Testament in the New Testament, Marcion's version of the Bible included sections of Paul's writings and a revised version of the Gospel of Luke. The church rejected Marcion's views. Nevertheless, today there are still those who apparently echo some of Marcion's beliefs. Therefore, let us consider what the Old Testament authors, the New Testament authors, and then the Lord Jesus Christ himself said about the Old Testament as we consider the Old Testament is God's word. The Old Testament authors. In the Old Testament, it is clear that the Old Testament authors affirmed they were speaking and recording God's word. For example, when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, the text says, Then God spoke all these words, saying... And when the people of Israel were preparing to enter into the promised land, Moses said, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. Finally, summarizing the laws in Leviticus, Leviticus 26, 46 indicates that these are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. Also, the prophets indicated they were delivering God's word to Israel and Judah, and the authors of Kings and Chronicles affirmed that these prophets were messengers of God. Furthermore, the Old Testament authors reveal several attributes of the Old Testament writings that demonstrate they are the word of God. Perhaps the most succinct example of this is in Psalm 19, 7 through 9. God's word is perfect without defect. It is trustworthy. It is altogether right and applicable to life. It is clear, giving insight to those who look to it. It is pure, without blemish, and therefore inerrant, and it is true. The Old Testament authors understood that their writings and the words they contained are the inerrant word of God, and their writings would continue to achieve God's purposes for which they were given, and therefore they would never cease to be the word of God. The New Testament authors The New Testament writers referred to the Old Testament as scripture or as the scriptures from the Greek word graphe, which literally means a writing or writings. It reveals they understood that the Old Testament is the word of God. For instance, when Jesus later met with his disciples after the resurrection, Luke equates what Jesus taught about himself in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms as the scriptures. The apostle John picked up on this regarding Jesus' resurrection indicating that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This truth that the Old Testament is the word of God lays the groundwork for understanding that the New Testament books are also scripture. Both Paul and Peter instruct believers that they should regard New Testament books with the same authority as the books of the Old Testament and not vice versa. Paul demonstrates this in 1 Timothy 5.18 when he quotes both Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7, introducing them as scripture. Peter wrote of those who twisted Paul's letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of scripture. As Guy Prentice Waters correctly states, the apostles not only confirm that the Old Testament is the inspired word of God, but instruct the church to regard the books of the New Testament as having precisely the same authority as the books of the Old Testament. The unbroken testimony of the apostles is that the books of both testaments are in their entirety special revelation, the inspired word of God. Given these points, 
The New Testament writers understood that the Old Testament is the word of God and that rather than being a replacement of the Old Testament, the New Testament is an expansion of the word of God. While believers today may say, and they do, even the Old Testament is the inspired word of God, the apostles were saying that along with the Old Testament, even the New Testament is authoritative word of God as well. The words of Jesus. All through his recorded life, Jesus affirmed that the Old Testament is, is the authoritative word of God. One example must suffice to demonstrate this truth. When the Pharisees attempted to trap Jesus concerning marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, 1-9, Jesus responded to them, quoting Genesis 1:27, stating that God created male and female. Next, he quoted Genesis 2:24, stating that this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together, Matthew 19, 5 and 6. Therefore, using the Old Testament as authoritative, Jesus declared that from the beginning, God established male and female. God also established the institution of marriage, defined by a male and female joining together and becoming one flesh, and that no one should split apart what God has joined together. The Old Testament and New Testament authors, as well as Jesus, all affirmed that the Old Testament is Scripture, the Word of God. Number two, we should study, teach, and preach the Old Testament because it is God's revelation of himself. There are a number of ways we can truly get to know others. Some ways are by paying attention to what they say about themselves, what they have done in the past, and what they communicate about their intentions for the future. Each of these help us get to know them. Similarly, in the Old Testament, God reveals himself by the attributes he has communicated about himself, by his actions, and by his communicated intentions for the future. Of course, the various names of God in the Old Testament reveal his various attributes. But what is the first thing the Old Testament reveals about who God is? It first reveals that God is a God who wants us to know him. One might say that what the Old Testament first reveals about God is that he is the creator. However, the fact that we have Genesis 1-1 and every verse of the scriptures following it reveals that he is a God who makes himself known and one, one way he has done so is through his word. Over 80 times in the Old Testament, God speaks and acts so that either Israel or the nations might know that he is Yahweh, the Lord. The fact that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have both the Old Testament and New Testament shows that God wants us to know him. Certainly, the incarnation of Christ demonstrates this, but before Jesus was born and the New Testament was written, God had already revealed that he is a God who is committed to making himself known through his word and actions as revealed in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, an excellent example of how God reveals himself by his attributes and deeds is his revelation that he is the creator. First, it means that by his word, everything in the universe begins with God, comes from God, and is sustained by God. Moses poetically prayed to the, to the Lord, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and world, from the beginning to the end, you are God. As the creator, rather than being part of creation, God is the one who sustains all of it. Second, 
It means that everything belongs to God and that he therefore has full authority over all his creation. Moses proclaimed to Israel, you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it all belong to the Lord, your God. And David wrote, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. Third, the truth that God is the creator demonstrates he has power over all creation and knows and does what is best in regard to it. Jeremiah wrote, but God made the earth by his power and he preserves it by his wisdom. With his own understanding, he stretched out the heavens. When he speaks in the thunder, the heavens roar with rain. He causes the clouds to rise over the earth. He sends the lightning with the rain and releases the wind from his storehouses. Therefore, when the Old Testament reveals that God is the creator, it is stating as much about who he is as it is about what he has done. To recognize God as the creator is to recognize his omnipotence and sovereignty over all creation. It is to proclaim along with the psalmist, our God is in the heavens and he does as he wishes. God often revealed himself through the prophets as they communicated God's intentions for Israel, both for the near future and beyond. Ultimately, these promises anticipated the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, number three, we should study and teach the Old Testament because it speaks of and anticipates the Lord Jesus Christ. Alec Matir wrote, The Old Testament is Jesus predicted. The Gospels are Jesus revealed. Acts is Jesus preached. The Epistles is Jesus explained. And the Revelation, Jesus expected. He is the climax as well as the substance and center of the whole. Several passages in the Old Testament attest to this truth. It is essential that one recognize that during the time of Christ, his followers did not always readily understand that certain prophecies in the Old Testament were about him. Greg Bill and D.A. Carson state it well. The same gospel that is sometimes presented as that which has been prophesied and is now fulfilled is at other times presented as that which has been hidden and is now revealed. Starting at the beginning, Genesis 1 through 11 reveals how humanity landed itself in the hopeless predicament of sin and sin's consequences because of its willful rebellion against God. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they discovered that the wages of sin is death. However, in Genesis 3.15, which is often called the Proto-Evangelium or First Gospel, there is hope because an offspring of the woman will ultimately de defeat the serpent, the one John calls in Revelation 20, verse 2, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan. The genealogy at the end of Genesis 11 and God's initiation of his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 is the beginning of the rest of the story of how God through Christ will defeat the serpent and save humanity. A second Adam, a descendant of Abraham and David, will crush the head of the serpent. Therefore, Genesis 1 through 11 also anticipates the promise of a new creation. And just as John indicates that God created everything through Jesus in John 1, 1 and 2, Everything in the new creation will come about through Jesus as well, as we see in Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Isaiah prophesied that the Lord would create new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. John caught a glimpse of this as recorded in Revelation 21. What's more, 
Humanity's moral collapse in Genesis 1 through 11 provides the, the reason why people will need to be made new creations in Christ who bear his likeness. The motif of fall, judgment, and then restoration that will exceed what had been previously is prevalent in the Old Testament, especially in the messages of the prophets. Ultimately, these messages come to an eschatological climax when they will be executed by the Lord Jesus Christ as depicted in Revelation 19 through 21. Understanding Jesus as the creator in Genesis 1 and 2 and what happened to creation in Genesis 3 through 11 anticipates his work of a new creation, the third part of the story that begins to take shape in Genesis 12. Paul seems to indicate this in Galatians 3, 8, and 9, writing, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. In a word, this work of new creation makes little sense apart from Old Testament texts which lay the foundation for understanding the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. From its beginning, the Bible not only lays the groundwork for the need of a Savior, but also promises one is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ recognized his mission in light of the Old Testament's anticipation of him. In Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus gives full expression to the meaning of the law and the prophets. Dwayne Garrett observes how Jesus embodies the full expression of God's law. Number one, Jesus becomes the Passover lamb to bring about release, deliverance from bondage, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Number two, Jesus is the realization of the requirements of the law and is the man who embodies the ideal image of God, Matthew 5, 17. Number three, Jesus is the one and only perfect sacrifice that makes atonement for sin, Hebrews 2, 17. He removes all impurity, <clears throat> Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. And he cleared the way so that one may have access to God, Matthew 27, 51. And then four, Jesus is the true tent of meeting who pitched his tent among his people and sojourns with them, John 1, 14. Consequently, when the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of disregarding God's law, Jesus rebuked them saying, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is, it is these that testify about me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Number four, we should study, teach, and preach the Old Testament because it lays the foundation for the New Testament. In light of the fact that the Old Testament speaks of and anticipates Jesus, it is no surprise that the authors of the New Testament extensively use the Old Testament as the foundation for their writings. Conservatively, there are at least 200 quotations of the Old Testament in the 7,957 verses in the New Testament. However, some argue that there are about 1,000 allusions to Old Testament passages in the New Testament. If this is accurate, then about one out of every eight verses in the New Testament in some way refers to the Old Testament. How the New Testament authors employed the Old Testament scriptures in their writings is buried <clears throat> and can be, can be a complicated matter 
as Bill and Carson have demonstrated in their commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Nevertheless, this is not the point here. The point is that however the New Testament authors intended to use the Old Testament through quotations, allusions, expressions, and language in their writings, their doing so demonstrates that the Old Testament is foundational for their writings, which are the continued revelation of God's word. For instance, all four of the gospel writers employ the Old Testament in their introductions. Matthew and Mark introduced Jesus as the Messiah, Ha uh, Mashiach, in Hebrew with the definite article attached. This Hebrew word appears 39 times in the Old Testament, meaning anointed or anointed one. R.T. France states that in conjunction with Old Testament prophecies, it seems that the title Messiah would, for most ordinary Jews, have pointed to a coming king of the line of David, whom God would send to restore his people to national independence and to the rightful preeminence as the people of God. What's more, the Old Testament anticipates that the Messiah will rule over all the nations and establish justice, peace, and blessing on earth. Matthew then introduces the record of Jesus, the Messiah's ancestors, by stating that Jesus is a descendant of David and of Abraham. In effect, right away calling Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham, Matthew begins presenting evidence that Jesus is the fulfillment of both the Davidic covenant and Abrahamic covenant. Luke quickly points to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant when he quotes Gabriel's announcement to Mary that echoes aspects of the Davidic covenant. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Furthermore, Zechariah the priest was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah's prophecy declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of both the Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. When John begins his prologue in verses 1 through 18, he does so a little differently from other, the other three gospel writers. In John's case, he immediately demonstrates a connection to the Old Testament with the first three words, in the beginning, echoing Genesis 1.1. Jesus' beginning did not begin in a manger. In fact, Jesus had no beginning because he already existed before the beginning as he was with God and is God. What's more, God created everything through him. What's also amazing that is that he became flesh and reminiscent of God's manifest presence with Israel in the wilderness at the tabernacle, Jesus tabernacled or pitched a tent among us on earth. As he concludes his prologue, John indicates that just as the law was given through Moses by grace, so by grace God's unfailing love and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. Greater than the law of Moses, Jesus is the fulfillment and full expression of it. So John not only shows that the law anticipates the coming of the Messiah, but in this verse he calls Jesus the Christ, which is to say the Messiah. This expression, along with calling Jesus the only begotten of the Father in verse 14, recognizes Jesus fulfilling the Davidic covenant. 
So all four of the gospel writers pointed out early in their writings that in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, Jesus is the Messiah. The significance of Jesus' fulfillment of the Davidic covenant cannot be overemphasized. It is foundational for New Testament authors' teachings about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not enough time to mention all of the New Testament authors' use of the Old Testament, and I'm sure you're glad of that. But I must mention the Apostle Paul. Arguably, his most theologically dense letter, Romans, has about 60 quotations of Old Testament verses. His theological points are chock full of allusions to the Old Testament and Old Testament expressions. Mark Seifried states that as Paul makes clear from the opening of the letter, his message to the church at Rome is nothing more than a proclamation of the scriptures, that is, the Old Testament, that have been fulfilled in the incarnate, crucified, and risen Christ. The gospel of God concerning his son is the fulfillment of prophetic promise and thereby of the message of the whole of scripture. The scriptures are no mere record of the past. They speak to the present as do their human authors. In 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes or partially quotes Old Testament scriptures at least 15 times and in 2 Corinthians at least 11 times. Even though there are not explicit quotations of the Old Testament until chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul's dependence on the Old Testament in Galatians should be readily apparent. In the first two chapters, Paul's message makes no sense outside of the conceptual world of the Old Testament. And of the remaining 94 verses in Galatians 3 through 6, there are at least 10 direct citations of the Old Testament along with several allusions to it. In the six chapters of Ephesians, there are at least 10 full or partial quotations taken from books in the Law, the Prophets, and the writings accompanied with more Old Testament allusions. The books of Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus all together only contain at most about 15 partial or full Old Testament citations, and some of these might be better understood as allusions. Nevertheless, his concerns and language in these letters still exhibit the influence of the Old Testament. The New Testament authors used their Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, to communicate God's word to New Testament believers. The more one knows and understands the Old Testament, the more one can truly understand their writings. Number five, we should study, teach, and preach the Old Testament because it gives wisdom unto salvation. Most believers speak as if the gospel was first revealed in the New Testament. However, if he were with us today, the Apostle Paul would beg to differ with them. Recalling again Genesis 15, 6 and Galatians 3, 8, and 9, Paul writes, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the, the believer. Accordingly, God proclaimed the gospel, the good news of salvation to Abraham who believed, and God counted him as righteous on account of his faith. Also, when Paul and Silas entered Berea, they went to the Jewish synagogue there and proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. The people there received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So after meticulously and careful 
our meticulous and careful examination of the scriptures, the Old Testament, these people recognized how the scriptures corroborated what Paul and Silas were declaring concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and came to saving faith in him. This scene demonstrates how God used the Old Testament to give wisdom unto salvation. What's more, in his second letter to his protege, Timothy, Paul writes, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the only time the expression sacred writings or sacred scriptures appears in the New Testament, but it appears that other Jews like Josephus, Josephus used this identical expression when they referred to the Old Testament. Certainly, Timothy had been taught about the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ as he came to saving faith in Christ. But with that, but um, given Timothy was taught the sacred, sacred scriptures, his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures coupled with what he had been taught about the Lord Jesus Christ gave him the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The sacred scriptures communicate God's intention to save sinners through the person and work of the Messiah. The scriptures alone could not save him, but God used them to enlighten Timothy to recognize and put his faith in the only one who could. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, contrary to what one might think, he did not use the Romans road track to proclaim the gospel. Instead, he began his sermon by quoting Joel 2, 28-32. Moses communicated to the Lord his desire that the Lord would pour out his spirit on all the people of God in Numbers eleven twenty nine. Joel prophesied that the Lord would do this as a sign of the last days. Peter quoted Joel to indicate that what his audience was witnessing among the believers speaking in various Gentile language, languages was evidence that Joel's prophecy was being fulfilled in front of them. The glorious day of the Lord has arrived, the dawn of the messianic age and the day of salvation for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord has come. Next, Peter declared that the scriptures attest to the truth that Jesus is the promised Messiah. After rehearsing how Jesus ministered among them, how they responded to him by executing him on the cross, and how God raised him up from the dead, Peter quoted Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, to prove that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah, the descendant of David, who conquered death just as David had prophesied he would, and as his followers witnessed. Then Peter quoted Psalm 110, verse 1, to argue that only Jesus ascended into heaven to sit at God's right hand, and that consequently, Jesus whom they crucified is both Lord and Messiah. When they heard Peter's message, 3,000 of them believed and were baptized. There's one God, one Savior, one Bible, and one faith. The scriptures in their entirety testify to this truth. Therefore, it should be no surprise that the Old Testament gives wisdom unto salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number six, we should study, teach, and preach the Old Testament because it provides instruction for New Testament believers. One of the issues that can be detrimental to believers is their failure to recognize that the Old Testament is relevant and provides essential instruction for us today. 
Not only did the law, the prophets, and the writings serve the needs of God's people in ancient Israel, but they continue to address the needs of the church today. As Isaiah stated, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. For instance, referring to the Israelites in the wilderness, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Furthermore, in Romans 15, 4, Paul makes a general parenthetical statement about the Old Testament that anticipates more of his usage of the Old Testament in the following section, stating, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. Concerning this, Tom Schreiner observes that the Old Testament scriptures were written for our instruction. That is for both Jews and Gentiles. By citing the Old Testament, Paul anticipates the scriptural katina in 15, 9 through 12. The experiences of Christ reflected in the Old Testament are a pattern and model for the church. As the prototype, he should be imitated. The authority of the Old Testament is clearly evident in the statement. Paul never understood the newness of his gospel to nullify the Old Testament. The gospel fulfilled the scriptures of old. The scriptures play a vital role in the lives of believers. Not only are they the source of instruction, but also believers derive consolation. The word consolation or encouragement here means that believers receive strength and comfort from the scriptures to continue living in a way that honors and does not regularly receive or to live in a way that honors God. In other words, something is wrong if one only studies the scriptures academically and does not regularly receive nourishment and strength to live the Christian life. The purpose of the scriptures is that believers should have hope. Once again, the immense practical role of the Old Testament in the lives of Christians is unfolded. Hope is generated through carefully reading, understanding, and obeying the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 9.9, Paul quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 25.4, which provides that the ox was, able to, or was to be able to eat from the grain while threshing it. Paul asks and answers, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. What is fascinating is that while surely recognizing that this passage was originally given to God's covenant people Israel, Paul emphatically communicates that New Testament believers need to understand this law was written for their, correct, or for their instruction also. Moreover, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, begin by stating that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It is reasonable that Paul was including the New Testament writings that had already been written as he uses the word graphe or scripture. But given the use of this word throughout the New Testament, it is safe to assume that Paul is at least referring to the Old Testament here. Based on the truth that all scripture is inspired by God, it follows that all scripture yields a practical benefit. How so? First, it is useful for teaching, that is for matters of doctrine and conduct. Second, it is useful for rebuking the errors of false teaching and reproving one's errant behavior. Third, the scripture is useful for correcting or restoring one back to the proper way of living in Christ. And fourth, 
It is useful for training believers in righteousness, for equipping them to live in a way that reflects the character of Christ. Each of these four beneficial uses of the scriptures are to be reflected in our preaching according to 2 Timothy 4.2. Certainly, Old Testament studies is essential to other necessary endeavors, such as, for example, apologetics, systematics, ethics, and missions. But the six reasons we have considered this morning should be sufficient for demonstrating the value of the Old Testament to the church today. I'd like to conclude with a story. When our sons were young, Ann and I often took them to a drive-in theater with a wonderful family atmosphere. On one particular evening, I did not realize how popular the superhero movie we were attending was, and there was a long line out on the road to get in. The movie began while we were still in line, but we were at least able to listen to it through the radio. It began with lots of chaos and explosions as the bad guys did something horrific, but because we were outside, we did not know what they actually did. When we finally got in, the rest of the movie was the good guys trying to figure out what had happened just like we were. So it's like it was real to us, actually. <laughs> Nevertheless, in the movie's climax, the good guys caught the bad guys, and all was well with the world. But we never really knew what caused the ruckus in the first place. Several months later, our youngest son came running into my study with a DVD in his hand, saying, Dad, I found out what happened. <clears throat> Wondering <clears throat> what had transpired at the beginning of that movie had weighed on his mind all that time. No doubt, the climactic event of all of history is the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in it. However, there is even greater understanding, appreciation, and rejoicing in the story of redemption and its climax when we begin where the story begins in the beginning.